Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Today, we're going to revisit what some of our past guests have said about building a go-to-market motion inside hyper-growth companies. The clips you're going to hear are from some of the earliest episodes of Grit. So if you've been listening for the last few years, this might be new to you. The other thing to note is that a lot of these were recorded online during the pandemic, so they might not sound as good as they do now. However, there's a lot of good stuff, so thanks for understanding. We're starting with Mike Clayville, who's the CRO of Stripe. When I spoke with him, I asked about his idea of first principles as a means to leading tornado companies. Mike, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. You joined IBM in 87. When you joined, was this all-time high stock price? Was this IBM Most profitable company in the history of the world. In 87 when you joined. In 87, the most profitable company in history of the world in 87 when I joined. How good were you feeling when you joined that company? I was excited about getting that offer from IBM. There was a long history, including people like Ross Perot, that spent six or seven years at IBM, really learned a lot about how to do really good customer interaction, and then went out and started their businesses and were unbelievably successful. And so I was delighted to get a chance to start at IBM and kind of follow that journey, if you will. Okay, so you started in 87. How long before the precipitous fall of IBM began in your tenure there? (laughs) So I went from Akers, who ran the most profitable company in the world, to Gershner, who had to recover the least profitable company in the world. And so under Gershner, I was the first line manager, and I was the first one that really that our first line community was the first one to ever take any employee reductions in the company's history. And so I had to call in these people that had been at the company 25, 30 years and tell them that they didn't have a job anymore. And it's a real experience for kind of a first time leader. Uh, So I was 26, 27 at the time. And all of these folks were 55 and 60. And many of them hadn't been in the IBM office for a decade. They were really out with their customers. And you call them into the office and ask them to leave their badge and their credit cards on the table. And it was a learning experience, that's for sure. Can I tell you, not the same, but somewhat similar story. In my first job, we were doing, it's called bracket computing. We were doing cloud security. It was the early, early days, like when Capital One was one of the few customers and we were trying to secure Goldman's move to the cloud. Little do we know, like they're still moving to the cloud. And so I was running the BDR team at 2223. The company had raised a boatload of money, didn't reach the revenue expectations that aligned to the valuation multiple that we got. Long story short, when you don't have product market fit and you're trying to set meetings, it doesn't work very well because, well, you don't have product market fit, your message isn't resonating. So I had a team of BDRs, one of whom she had a family and kids and We had to lay off everyone but one person. And they said, Jubin, can you do it? And I had no idea what to do. And my boss had to basically take over. And it was the first time at a young age that I realized like, this is not just a job and this is not a joke. Like this is pretty serious. And this woman has kids and I'm basically a kid. That's when the line started really blurring for me. It is hard. And that was a good lesson early on of, I don't want to experience this. It's a shitty feeling. When you got into that territory, I heard you say that it hadn't hit its number in seven years. And when you rolled in there, it was at 20% of plan. Is that Yeah, right? forecasting being 40% at the end of the year. I rolled in with seven months to go. So I rolled in in May and a team of 10. And then I got the opportunity to let 80% of the team go. Why'd you take the job? There was no sign that we were ever going to do this. So I had taken the job in May. Everything seemed to be going along just fine. And then I think it was September, three months in, 
that, okay, here's the next part of your job. And we're going to give you two more territories. But that was manufacturing. Then they ended up giving me transportation and consumer goods. But first thing you got to do is clean this one up. Then we're going to give you these two others to go clean up as well. And so it was interesting. For sure, it was the first time that I realized that, you know, sometimes you really need a new frame to create success. So it really was like, all right, how do I kind of rewrite the way I think about selling? And I always start with a customer every time I consider change. I said, what can we do to help our customers understand our solutions better? And I came up with this notion of a manufacturing plant. And selling is like a manufacturing plant. You have capacity. You have quality that you have to manage. You have to manage throughput. You have to manage velocity. It really is a lot like a manufacturing plant. I use that notion and the idea of mass customizing for your manufacturing, for your customer. And I came up with a way to fundamentally break apart the selling process, specialize and automate each part of the process. And the result of all of that was that team the next year hit 140% of plan the first time in eight years that they'd made plan and they blew it out. Just the two of them. I didn't put more resources into that territory. I gave all of those accounts to the same two people and we gave them a year on year growth and they blew it out. Turning that thing around as a first time manager in that specific circumstance, how much mojo, how much confidence did that give you? knowing that you are thrown into the deep end and that you could make it to the other side. It gives you a lot of confidence, but more importantly, it gives you a frame. I now manage businesses and manage change based off first principles. And so every time I go through change, I rewind back to first principles. And every time I come into a new company, I, I oftentimes am asked, well, do you just take the same playbook to a new company? And I'd, I'd answer it, do pro football coaches take the same plays to every game? You know, it doesn't work that way. You can't do it that way. Begin with first principles. Begin with understanding the characteristics of your team and the characteristics of your customers, and then figure out what plays will work in those two contexts. And so I don't take the same plays. This is now the sixth tornado. I call these hyper growth companies tornadoes. This is the sixth one that I've been in. And I have never taken the same playbook into any of them. And by the way, if you're not going to use the same plays, you're not going to use the same personnel. Another question people always ask is, well, aren't you just taking the same people from company to company? I'm like, nope, it's about building the right team and then getting the right plays and managing the right execution. And I'm lucky here at Stride, we're an execution machine. And that happened before I got here. Unbelievably successful execution machine that is really user-centric. And now all you have to do is bring a few more plays to take it to the next level. What are the qualities of a tornado? First thing about a tornado is you're building something that's never been built before. So, you can't rely on the rear view mirror to see the future. And so you have to experiment and use customer anecdotes to predict the future rather than use historical charts and linear regressions. So you really have to be a builder and an inventor. If you're really gonna do something unique, you're gonna be wrong once in a while. So you can be willing to be wrong. Anything that is really unique is never obvious. And so you're never going to get it right every time. So you got to be a builder, but you also have to recognize that risk means great reward, but you got to do it right. And then you've got to be really first principle based and everything has to start with the customer. If someone's interviewing for your team, if you don't care about the playbook that they've run before, and you are more interested in the way that they think about things, and maybe you could couch that in first principles. How do you scratch at that? How do you uncover that 
first principle mindset in somebody that you're trying to recruit or that's interviewing with you? So let me tell you how I think about teasing out great people for the go-to-market. Yeah. You got to find people that like to change because the, the thing about sales is there's a Darwinism about sales. If you're not evolving, everybody else is evolving around you and you're going to go the way of the dinosaurs. And so you have to be willing to change every day. But that change has to be first principle based and you get to change in the right way. And so I always watch for my team and their experience around changing, not their experience around the company they worked for before. That's one thing. The second thing is having the right characteristics is absolutely critical. And so to be really successful as a seller, I've come to know that you've got to have an innate curiosity. Curiosity, probably one of the most important characteristics of a seller, because what it does is it helps them ask that next question of the customer that uncovers the big problems of the customer. If you don't have an innate curiosity, you're not going to be asking enough questions to really know deeply your customer. And the more curious you are, the deeper you'll know your customer. And that's disproportionately important in the fullness of time. Next is Marcy Campbell, who at the time was the VP of Global Services at PayPal. She told me what she looks for before joining a company and what it takes to establish a successful sales motion. Marcy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jubin. You mentioned earlier, like, the boxes that people put you in, right? And, and I talk about this actually quite a lot in, in the show, and, and I've seen this, like, working at Kleiner. Everyone but the CEO is in a box, right? The founder, <laughs> right? So the zero to 50 gal or the 50 to 100 guy or the IPO CFO or whatever it is, right? Everybody's kind of in the box except for the founder. Okay, as an example... At Engine Yard, you sold to developers. At Cubal, you sold to C-Level. You never sold to developers at that point. The sales process is so different. Like, do you think selling is just selling? Do you think it's the same shit everywhere? Like, how can you just walk in like that and build a bottoms-up sales motion and then flip it around and then do a top-down? This is interesting. This is an interesting question for me. I would never build the same sales motion for company A versus company B without understanding what the products were, who they sold to, who the persona was, what the market dynamics were. And at that point, all of those things, it's almost like a PM job when you're early stage sales. You go out and you find out who's out there, what sales motions do you have to have based on who your customer is. And you know, it was interesting for me because after building you know, a development sales team, we built what we called pandas, which were polite agents of non-destructive assimilation because developers hate salespeople. So we would hire kids out of Cal with engineering degrees and tell them, you know what, you have to be a panda first before you can move into other areas within EngineYard. And we got a lot of great pandas who then lived in the community and helped us help people buy, right? It was a very different sales motion of going in and giving it away for the freemium model and then transferring that. When I went to Cubal, what I found is that their pipeline was stuck in the middle. And I'm like, okay, so this is not working. And so I called a bunch of companies that didn't buy and I got really lucky. I talked to a couple of VPs of engineering who were our customers. And I said, why didn't you buy? And he said, I'm not your customer. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, I don't really use Hadoop. I don't have massive amounts of data. I have one great engineer and, you know, I, I don't have my data in the cloud. I'm like, aha, okay. So I've got a qualification mechanism that we called COMSA, which was, are you on the cloud? Do you have an object store? Is it massive amounts of data? Is it ad hoc? Is it structured and unstructured? And if you answered three of five of those, we would move forward. And so it was about like figuring out the puzzle of the market and the entry points. And we did the same thing when I went to Braintree, right? I was like, okay, how is this being sold? Is it being sold correctly? Who are the ancillary players in the market? How can I get to market quick? And what's a repeatable motion that I can see really quickly? And I think that's, you know, when people say, what is your superpower? I think that's my superpower is sort of pattern matching and being able to see, yeah. And your pattern matching, like when you said you went to Braintree, like Braintree was doing over 2 billion yes. when you went to Braintree. Yeah, we were doing $2.3 billion. 
Yeah. Okay. And Engine Yard was doing less than a million. No, no, no. Engine Yard was doing, we did like 50 million. When you started. Oh, when I started. Yeah, I was doing nothing. Yeah, it was small. Yeah, exactly. But you're asking the same questions, trying to draw a similar set of patterns of like, who the hell am I selling to? What am I selling? And how are we going to get it into their hands? Exactly. And, you know, the interesting thing for me, the lessons that I learned in my startup world, I was able to bring to Braintree. The VP of sales ops at PayPal worked for me at Kubel. And I brought him into Braintree and I said to him, we're going to do everything we did at Kubel. We're just going to do it at scale. And so we went in and we did the same. We brought ABM and we brought uh, BDRs and we started doing marketing campaigns. We ended up building campaigns that would go into the back book and across the organization. We built out a methodology for pipeline management. When I was at Cubel, we had no data because we had no revenue. And so what we did was every month I built a plan for a million dollars ARR. And then every month I would measure it against it and tell the board where we were and pivot based on you know, acceleration or deceleration of that plan. When I went to Braintree, we didn't have good processes in Salesforce. We didn't have discipline. We weren't using Salesforce the way we needed to. And so we just, I said, okay, it's bad data. Let's take a snapshot of it and let's look at trends week over week, month over month, start to force the discipline and start to look at how do we manage through commit, best case and pipeline. And then we brought all of that with us to PayPal. And so, you know, that's really was the fundamentals of the building blocks of how do you build the machinery around sales? Because sales is a science, but you address the market differently and you can use a lot of creativity around the types of markets you're addressing. So sales is a science, but decision-making is a bit more of an art. When you think about the art of deciding, and maybe it's a science, but when you think about the art of deciding what your next company is going to be, besides following certain leaders, what are non-negotiables for you that are characteristics of the organization that you need to see in order for you to jump in? You know, I think it's really important to have an environment that's collaborative, where that people have a voice. And when you go into interview with folks to join a company, it's about, you know, how do they talk about each other? How do they work? And how do they work cross-functionally? You know, I have a lot of respect for VPs of marketing because I did the job and I know how difficult it is. And the same thing with engineering. I haven't done the engineering job, but I've been very close to it. And the same thing with PM and knowing the other functions. So there's a little bit of chemistry. There's a little bit of, you know, market opportunity. I'm very good at seeing the market opportunity. The question is, you know, can you build the right team for that market? And do you have the right funding source? And are you going to get the trajectory? I think that when I look at, you know, I came to Braintree because the opportunity for me personally was to show I could scale, where we went from 2.3 to 2.7 to 3.2 in 18 months. Billion. Yeah, billion. Right. Okay. And then I went to North America and I ran North America Enterprise, which is billions and billions of dollars, right? It's the largest, you know, region within PayPal. And then Australia Enterprise. And then Jordy ended up working for me again as VP of sales ops. So we, I had sales ops and sales enablement and built that up. And so I think when you look at opportunities, you have to look at like, what can I bring to bear? Can I make an impact? And, you know, are they going to let me to have enough room and enough influence for me to drive change or to build a sustainable business? Yeah. I've heard you say that whenever you join a company, you always close a deal or two. Is that true as a rep? Tell me more about that. Well, I always want to be part of, yeah, that's the first thing I do is I get on with customers, right? So I just want to find out and I want to be with the sales teams. You know, I consider myself after a lot of years selling pretty much, I, I consider myself a salesperson who knows an enormous amount about the process and the art. And, you know, the thing about sales is that you can't see that someone's selling you, right? That you're just actually on the same side of the table with them helping solve problems. And so you want to be able to see that and see what talent you have, what the process is, what is the conversation, where are the gems that are being dropped on the floor that could be picked up and, and be used as a way to accelerate sales in a repeatable fashion? So, yeah, I'd like to get involved, 
you know, I'm still involved with a lot of our customers. I have more senior conversations and I may not be involved in the mechanics of the deal as much, but I am involved with sort of how do you build out the strategy for, for massive amounts of revenue for companies that PayPal has in their portfolio. Dan Shapiro is the COO of LinkedIn. At the time of recording, the chief business officer, and before that, basically every role at LinkedIn. In this clip, I asked him what it takes to be an effective salesperson, an effective sales leader, and what to do when your company is growing at hyperspeed. Dan, welcome to the show. Pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You mentioned earlier entrepreneurial in style. That kind of stuck with me because at Kleiner, we work with a bunch of early stage entrepreneurs. And typically, entrepreneurism and early stage companies are very tightly integrated, at least in my mind. Like those are kind of one in the same. And you've been at LinkedIn for 12 years. When you say entrepreneurial in style, do you feel like you still get to scratch that itch, that creative spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit, even now today, managing a giant business within what is Microsoft? Do you feel like you still get to keep that ethos? Absolutely. I think that actually I've learned that I enjoy scale in a way that I didn't appreciate because it allows the surface area of the problems that we think of to be much larger. If you sort of ask me what I love to do, I love to look at hard, complex problems, make sense of them in my own mind, see a path forward and make things happen. And I think what's entrepreneurial about many people that work at LinkedIn that are larger companies and also many startups is you see the world as it could be and you make it happen irrespective of the barriers to make progress. And that can happen in a small setting. It's a little easier to do because there's less history to deal with, but it can absolutely happen in a larger setting. And sometimes the impact you can have is larger in a larger setting because of the number of lives you can touch. We at LinkedIn, we help millions of people get jobs every year. We help millions of people learn skills every year. If we can figure out a way to make our business 30% better, that's a million people whose lives have been changed by virtue of solving a problem that existed in the world. So entrepreneurship to me is seeing the world as it could be and having the conviction to make it happen. Really cool. Okay, so all of this has informed Dan the leader today, right? And it was a twist and turn of a journey that is really unfairly overly simplified in a two-minute bio read by me. But all that being said, I think from the time that you started as a sales and go-to-market leader 12 years ago to today, the world has changed and maybe styles have to change in order to be what is an effective leader. I'd, I'd love to just leave that open-ended and, and start there and hear your thoughts. Absolutely. And I think we could maybe approach it from the perspective of what does it take to be an effective salesperson? And then also what does it take to be an effective sales leader? Because I think that those are different things. In today's world, I don't think it's been hidden. I think there's been a lot of talk about it. Our buyers are in different situations for two reasons. The first is they have way more information than they used to have. And so think about when you go buy a product online as a consumer, you research it, you look it up, you make comparisons, you have a lot more information before you get in the conversation. And so the role of the salesperson is increasingly becoming as a problem solver and partner with your customer to help them move forward, which is very different than it was years ago. And I think that it puts more need on the skill set within the salesperson to understand the client's situation, to understand how they can add value to that situation and ultimately help that client make a great decision. The number one sales question I love asking any rep on any deal is if you were the client, what would you buy? If you can answer that question and the result of that question is, is our products and services, then fantastic. But oftentimes people will say, I don't know. I don't know what I would buy if I were them. And that means that you haven't really done your homework to play the role of a great salesperson in guiding the client through a process. I think from a sales leadership perspective, it goes even further because there are two new dynamics that are going on in sales. One is that most of the products we sell today, at least at LinkedIn, are either a subscription product or an auction product. You're buying ads and they run through an auction. And in those businesses, you earn the business of tomorrow every day. Whether or not your product creates value is what means whether you build a bigger business or your business deteriorates. And that's quite different than 10 or 20 years ago where in technology, you'd show up, you'd sell a big package and it was a one-time event. And what happened after that event didn't really matter to the economics of your company. It matters a ton today. And so sales leadership is really becoming more about value delivery than persuasion. 
So the art form of persuasion is important, but it's not as important as actually helping clients get value out of the things that they purchase. So I think that's a huge trend. And then the other trend that's going on is that the tech landscape around sales and sales tools is just blowing up. And I think we're going to find that like many other functions, future go-to-market leaders understand both selling and sales, and they understand all of the tools and technologies that can be leveraged by sales teams to build world-class organizations. And I think the balance is shifting from probably 90-10 sales to foundational efforts to what will probably over time become more 50-50. You know, marketing was owned by the brand builders to it's more of a balance between the the brand experts and the the MarTech experts. So on the AE profile, has your perspective changed? And is the way that you look at hiring, interviewing, finding those people changed over these, call it last 12 years as well? It has. And I think that very luckily, I learned from Mike Gamson, who we talked about earlier, that we wanted to build a team of sales professionals that started with a value-based approach to working with clients. Our goal is to have our own culture and values and then manifest that in helping our customers. But I think there are a lot of companies where what do sales teams reward? They reward results and results alone, irrespective of whether the clients are getting helped and irrespective of what that means for people's teammates. I think it's just not working anymore because clients see value and they understand whether they're getting it or not. And also that selling is becoming more of a team sport. The number of collaboration points and connection points that are happening within sales teams these days means that you need to work well with others. And I'm not sure that that was necessarily the history of many sales teams. That brings up an interesting point because I've always thought what makes the best rep often is the opposite of what makes the great leader. And Mm. honestly, I'm just thinking about this now, but even when you talk about the way that a good sales rep has evolved, good looks very different than before. Good used to look like the lone wolf. Good used to look like the person that would bring Medusa's head to the table. Good used to look like someone that was, you know, somewhat self-centered and that's what made them good. They were selfish with their time. Maybe what you're saying now, and not to put words in your mouth, but I'd love to hear your thought is that that profile has evolved into good looks like a better teammate. Good looks like a solution seller. Good looks like putting yourself in the customer's shoes. Good starts to sound a lot more like a good manager. And I mean good in the terms of a good AE. That gap seems to maybe in this new definition have been abridged a little bit. Thoughts there? I hadn't thought about it that way before, but it resonates. And maybe it's also just how I think about myself, which is, I'm a problem solver at heart and I care about other people. And I think that when you bring a caring approach and you try to help someone solve a problem, they want to do business with you. And then when you get promoted to being a manager and you care about other people and you like to solve problems, then you solve problems with your team and your team loves working with you because they're doing a better job because of your support. And as you become a leader, now you're solving problems for the organization and your team feels the energy of care that you bring to that leadership role. So I think in a very positive way, the byproduct of being a great salesperson and a great leader is the byproduct of being a strong human being, which is how do you treat others? And can you make things happen when you want to make the world a better place? I think that alignment's really, really positive. To your point about data, I had a guest on and he talked about three pillars that sales leaders should really think about and that he's always oriented himself towards. The first is selling. As a sales leader, you need to be able to sell, right? Sell the product, whatever that might be. It's an easy way to gain respect. Most leaders can do that pretty well. The second is you need to be enthusiastic and recruit. You need to be able to recruit. And he says, again, most people can do the recruiting part pretty well, you know, within some degree of variation. The third is operations. And I say operations, and I think you could say data, tools, whatever that might be. That's typically where sales leaders are weak. They're just not as strong in that third pillar as they are in the first two, because the first two are typically what got them to where they are, not the third. So maybe using that orientation of operations and rigor, as a sales leader, is it, okay, I need these five tools? How do you actually think about being more rigorous about your operations, about your data, about your tools, and becoming a more effective leader from that perspective? There's a lot in there. Let's start with the framework you started with. My dad used to say, show me the CEO of a company and I'll show you the number one problem the company's facing. 
And I think the same is true for sales leaders. There is a set of problems that a sales leader needs to deal with on the early days of a company. There are certain kinds of problems they'll deal with in hyper growth. There are certain kinds of problems when certain product lines are in decline and you need to manage for profitability. And so I don't have a framework of what makes a great sales leader. I start with the problem the business is facing because ultimately what a sales leader is doing is it's harnessing the power of an organization through whatever challenges it's facing. And so I would encourage all the sales leaders out there to actually spend more time asking themselves what a great sales leader in this moment for my company looks like, as opposed to trying to think about a generalized approach for what sales leadership should look like. I think those three things you mentioned are important, right? How can you, can you sell? Can you recruit? Can you operate? Those are important, but I think that there's a number of different ways to look at it. With respect to how I operate, there are two kinds of measures, and I know that a number of companies have adopted this. I think everyone should be able to measure inputs and outputs. The outputs are the things that you measure to know whether the results of the business are on track or not. And we have a very good organization at LinkedIn led by a number of different teams to make sure that we are heavily instrumented on the things that matter. That's bookings, that's churn, that's renewal rates, that's velocity of the demand funnel. It's also the value that customers get from our business. We treat customer value on the same level playing field as revenue when we think about whether the business is healthy or not. You show me a business that's growing on revenue, but value is poor or the other way around. And that's an unsustainable business. The only way you know you're building a business for the future is when both of those things are happening. Revenue is growing and value is growing. So we measure the number of hires our customers get, the number of leads that they get. And that tells us whether or not we're building success over time. But equally important to those output measures, which is what people traditionally talk about, are input measures. What's the cause and effect relationship between the things that you can do operationally and the outcomes that you want to achieve? So that might be more about activities, or that might be more about certain product activation levers that if the client turns on this integration point, it's going to light up a bunch of future benefit. It could be about the ability to measure how your team's feeling and whether or not they're engaged and they're excited. And so one of the conversations we often have is, do we understand cause and effect between the outcomes we want to drive and what drives them? And then do we measure both of those things? And for me, that gives a really nice balance to track and measure the business. Jim Herbold was one of my very first guests. He scaled Box from 600K to 200 million over the course of seven years. And when we recorded, he was the B2B general manager at Com. We primarily discussed his theory of unicorn meat, which is an article he published years ago while at Box. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Can you explain what the premise behind unicorn meat is? Like what you meant by that illustration before I dive into it? Sure. So I got to first give credit to a fellow named Jamie Gretty, who was running marketing for me at Infer. That was the, one of the jobs I had after Box. And he wanted to get some sort of playbook stuff. He wanted to prop me up and do some thought leadership and publish some things on LinkedIn and whatnot. So I don't know where I found the image. I was just searching on the internet and found this image called canned unicorn meat. And it was on some site called ThinkGeek, which I've never visited since. It's just a picture of a unicorn and it's, you know, the primal cuts of a cow or the primal yep. cuts of a pig where they have these like dotted lines. It's like, oh, that's the sirloin and no, that's the rump roast or whatever. It surrounds a unicorn, which has got the lines for the primal cuts. And it's like dreams and wishes and giggles and magic and sunshine and kisses and love. And, you know, that's what is a unicorn. And I'm like, number one, that's all ridiculous. Number two I then went and took the exact same image of the primal cuts of the unicorn and just overlaid things like customer inputs and self-disruption and testing and cultural cohesion and A-plus lieutenants, some of the stuff we just talked about relative to Box. And it was a way for me to just capsulate how I think about what's important when you're trying to build something so big and so complicated. And by the way, doing it very quickly and doing it with competition in the marketplace, et cetera. So if you go to the article, it is still on TechCrunch. You can search on unicorn meat and you will find it. Like I said, I read it again. I'm like, oh, that's a damn good read. It's a damn good read. And producers, <laughs> please put this in the show notes uh, for the audience to go and get. It is an unbelievable handbook. So let's dive into it. And I want to chop up this unicorn here with you. And Maybe I'll just start with rattling off all of the different pieces of 
the unicorn that you divvied out. And then I want to go into each of them. Yep. The first is customer inputs, then self-disruption, dirty fingernails, small doses of structure, cultural cohesion, BHAGs, testing, a Goliath opponent, banter, only A-plus lieutenants, KPIs. So let's go into it. Customer inputs. There's often more to learn in your losses than your wins in the early days of company building. You talked about this earlier and I was biting my tongue because I wanted to talk about it in the context of this. When you went to those CIOs and you said, I don't even have a product to sell, you weren't as much a sales rep as you were a product manager at the time. So I don't know, maybe talk about customer inputs a little bit. At a high level, I'll say this also, there's deep beauty in the innovation that happens in this part of the world called Silicon Valley. And there are so many people with iteratively wonderful next ideas for innovation. But that innovation and those ideas are only as good as the marketplace says they're good. The marketplace has to say yes with dollar bills, quite frankly. So what I really like is validating product market fit. And those inputs come from buyers and they will tell you if you ask them open-ended questions, what they really think about what you're hustling. So it is about distilling signals across a multitude of conversations. It's staying very close to the front lines of your sellers, with your sellers, hand in hand on those conversations to learn what people would value and what they don't value, what they would pay to have you build, what they would pay not very much to have you build. I like to channel those feedback points back into everything about how we do messaging frameworks, adoption frameworks, and obviously sales frameworks. So it's about listening to your customers. I think it's the most important thing. It's the best part of sales for me is that they give you all the signals of what you need to do to build a company around a product. Yep. If you just listen to those signals, you have most everything you need to build a successful company. How did you take that data and relay it and communicate it or synthesize it back to the business in an effective way? How did you take all these meetings, put that data somewhere, and then interpret that into something or allow the business to interpret that on your behalf? Very simply, one would keep track of this in a CRM. And I think there's also an element of making sure that the reps are consistently asking the same open-ended questions and making notes and, and using like pick list options in fields in Salesforce. Like, what is it that they're asking for? Why are they saying no to us? What is what feature gaps? Literally asking, what do you think are our feature gaps? The last piece is I would usually find somebody else not in sales to follow up with deal losses two to four weeks after the loss and just say, hey, I'm not in sales. I'm not trying to sell you anything, but I want to gather some feedback for you. And product marketing is good for that task. Yeah. But a lot of folks will say no to that request. But when folks do say yes, there's usually a lot of gold there to go mine. And when you say loss, when you're creating a market, it's not the traditional loss of you lose to another competitor. Do you just mean a loss like look, guys, not a priority, don't have the time, whatever excuse a buyer might make up, is that a loss in your mind? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Or the outright, no chance, I'm going somewhere else with some, some other vendor. Like, yeah, that all counts. They're not signing on the dotted line and I'm not getting paid commission. That's a loss. I like that <laughs> idea, following up two to four weeks with PM. Okay, I could have an hour show on each of these, and so it hurts <laughs> me to breeze through this in the way that I am, but I'm going to, unfortunately, for time's sake. The second one, self-disruption. If you have ever worked for me, you've probably heard me say this a hundred times. If we're doing things in six months like we're doing them today, we are doomed for failure. Many people are naturally drawn to simplification, process, and repetition, and I'm sure most are good, smart people, and hard workers, but you should actively try to not hire them in an early startup. And I think the essence of what this is saying is scale with a company. And I think about this a lot in the sense that one of the biggest challenges of being at a fast growing company is that it's fast growing and that the ground just moves underneath you so quickly. And you have salespeople that come in on the go to market side that are myopically focused on one goal. And so often they kind of miss the forest through the trees, if that makes sense. And they're sure. so mission and task oriented. That's what makes them good. And so in a lot of ways, they kind of have to keep reinventing themselves. Their territories are going to change comp plans, quotas, bosses, product strategy, all these things. Is that how you meant it? 
It is how I meant it. Look, your product is evolving at all times. The competitive landscape is evolving at all times. The buyers, they're evolving at all times. And companies and individuals need to be able to improve themselves iteratively, step by step. And, you know, it's not something that comes naturally. It's hard. And, you know, this podcast, Go to Market Grit, grit in the context of building a company around Go to Market is a commitment to constantly improving on the thousand dimensions of improvement that we can actually focus on. That's hard work. For me, grit has to do with perseverance when it's hard and disruption and change and rejiggering this playbook page or this set of qualifying questions versus the thousand other hard things you can do. And I think it's important for sellers actually, you know, they basically by and large need to be told what to do. You need to outline it for them, but they also need to be brought into this process of tuning things, improving things. So that's where there is a particular personality that I'm looking for early in a company and it's flexible and it's creative and it's collaborative and it's very, very okay with testing lots of things. And I'm not trying to hire that type of person late stage. I want a coin-operated sales rep later on, but with the company itself and with yourself, we talked about my journey at Box and how I lasted. I spoke about the evolution I went through as a leader and how it became more inspirational and more about believing we can do it as a team together, more like a coach of a literally a sports team. Whereas before it was super duper tactical and like, let's dig in on the thousand things we can be doing right now to improve ourselves a little bit each time. I'll say this, most great companies are built on the thousands and thousands of little steps of improvement, not one big, huge leap forward. Every once in a while, you get a Google or an Amazon that just has it and boom, it's instantly the thing and it's huge. But most companies require so much more hard work, detail work. So yeah, that's self-disruption. And to your point on companies are built on the backs of so many little details. I think great sales reps are actually built on that same premise. And the idea is like the great reps, you don't see 98% of what actually makes them great because they're constantly paying attention to details in the background that others aren't and improving those details and refining that process. And so I think it's, it's analogous to what makes a great company is, is similar to what might make a great sales rep in the, in the go-to-market motion. Let me riff on that a bit and again, connect it back to the theme of this podcast, which is grit. For me, grit in sales, the finest expression of grit is walking into objections, actively asking questions to find who's not into this and why. And again, the signaling from those people, those are the no's that are out there walking into that uncomfortable situation. It's hard, but then the signaling you take out of it gives you the thousand points of iteration that you might consider doing to improve your business. And the best salespeople are the ones who are able to take those feedback points and go back into the organization and get things tweaked and tuned so that those objections can be attended to. Yeah. Walking into objections is my view of sales grit period. I agree. Yesterday I had a conversation with one of our CEOs and they're trying to close their first sets of customers. And he's talking to me about this big pipeline that they have and how he has these incredible relationships with all these buyers at all these companies. And I started looking at the logos and I thought, these people have been in this pipeline for a very long time. So I said, are you making friends with them or are you trying to get a deal done? Because if you're trying to get a deal done, go ask them why you can't get that deal done. Go get to know quickly. You're just sitting in la-la land here making friends, but you're not actually getting meaningful feedback and you're certainly not gonna get a deal done. You just feel good about spinning around the same 20 opportunities, which then builds complacency for you not to go fill the top of the funnel. If you actually inspected your own pipeline and inspection happens through the process of getting to know, the customer telling you why it's not gonna work, then all of a sudden you're gonna be left with three or four real deals and you're gonna feel the sense of urgency to go fill the top of funnel and find the next five diamonds in the rough that are actually a good fit. Absolutely. Yeah, there are people who are better at that than I am, for sure. And that inspection of the pipeline, that hardcore assessment of what's really going on in that opportunity with energy and a focus on accountability, there are people who are better at that than me, hands down. 
I have no problem admitting it, but it's really important to have somebody who's good at that inside of your sales organization, hopefully in some sort of manager, director, VP, whatever role. A hundred percent. And I think it's especially hard for technical founders because they're not salespeople. They're not conditioned that way. And this product is their pride and joy. And so that's why you hire someone in sales who's a bit disassociated from the emotional state of what you're building. And is actually just myopically focused on getting it across the finish line. Indeed. Gotta get paid, brother. Exactly. 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 (laughs) Okay. Dirty fingernails. Lead from the front is good advice. Join calls with frontline folks. Don't skip one-on-ones. Attend ad hoc team gatherings. Play some pranks on people. Provide deep and detailed feedback on that Google Doc someone shared with you. Answer your emails quickly. Go close a deal. Go make a cold call. Hit LinkedIn to find a referral for someone else in your company. I could go on and on. So I'll pause there. What did you mean by that in reference to dirty fingernails? Well, look, it's just especially early stage, nothing's off limits. You are the jack of all trades. You might be wearing a sales hat, but it could be a product hat this hour. It could be a marketing hat next hour. It could be something collaborative across into engineering or into the product team. Right now, what I'm doing at Calm, we're building a B2B business inside of a very successful existing consumer play. It's a small team. You know, There's not much hierarchy. I'm involved in all kinds of dimensions with my people figuring things out and doing things. A couple of weeks ago, I was working with my sales ops person, tweaking opportunities in Salesforce to be consistent. I'll do that. I don't care. It needs to get done. And I don't want to ask Jack to have to do all that stuff himself. So yeah, I'll put eight hours into tweaking freaking opportunities in Salesforce so that they all look and act the same compared to the actual contracts. It's just a willingness to do that kind of stuff. And when your team sees you as one of them, that's actually leadership. It's not that you have a team, and I I say this in the article, it's that they see you as their leader. I'll give you a corollary. How do you know as a leader when to promote somebody from within versus hire from the outside? The question that everybody faces. Ask people around that individual that might be viable for internal promotion. They will tell you who they trust the most. They will tell you who acts as their internal team lead without even having that moniker or that designation. People will nominate the right one in the group if you just ask them. And if you don't get the signals that anybody fits that profile of, they're actually the person that I go to for advice or for help, then hire from the outside. But the people around them will tell you what needs to happen. Small doses of structure. Trying to put playbook-derived endgame structures in place too early does not allow for iteration. Without step-by-step iteration, you might lose the ability to read where or why or how something went sideways. Your team's spider sense of being handed too much change will activate. Keep your playbook on the side for occasional reference only. Yeah. We haven't talked much about what I did with consulting for nearly five years, but there was always the temptation to tell stories about what happened in Box or, oh, I solved that problem this way at Box. The best part about consulting for me was I was able to just deeply immerse myself in what was in front of me with that particular business, that buyer, this product, and the signals. Contextually inventing what's appropriate for that situation is way more fun than saying, oh, this is how I did it before. So, playbook stuff is great. You know, we're trying to build sales repeatability at the end of the day, and we're trying to build efficiency and how we squeeze maximum dollars out of every single opportunity. But early on, again, and I view myself as being super duper happy when I'm working with small companies early stage. That's how I see myself. But I don't use playbooks. I want to have things be fluid and I want to test and see what works. And it's funny, in consulting, I interviewed probably 50 to 60 CRO candidates for various roles we were trying to fill in my consulting clients' companies. And it's funny how some of them come to interviews with literally their printed playbooks. And then I instantly know, not it, no chance. Are you going to be able to take that thing and make it work here? Zero chance. Put your playbook away and tell me how you're going to grow this thing in such a different conversation. So yeah, 
playbooks are important, but they can actually be something of a joke and way too rigid and not flexible enough to actually iterate at all. Lastly, we have Chris Degnan, CRO of Snowflake, first sales rep and employee number seven. Longtime listeners of the show will have heard me talk about Chris. He means a lot to me. He's become a big brother and it's absolutely astonishing to see the ride that he's been on over the last 10 years. In this clip, he talks about the nuts and bolts of building the company. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jubin. Thanks for having me. How many customers did it take before you were like, I need some help? At what point was it like, I need a BDR or I need an SE or I need a couple AEs coming and working with me? And at what point did you feel like you needed an enabler for you, which might be an SE or a BDR to help take your time into closing? And then at what point did you feel the confidence that you had enough customers and repeatability, i.e. you've paved the yellow brick road to feel good about recruiting the requisite talent to get a couple more AEs to join the band with you? Does that make sense? So I joined in November, 2013. It was a technical product, technical sale. There was a a guy who was technical at the company who supported me effectively as an SE until I hired my first SE, who didn't start until... I think February of 2014. But in the meantime, I had to generate all this demand. And so I would call myself a spam master. I would have to manually build my own lists. And so our office manager, Nancy, she went to, was taking night classes and she knew this girl who was taking night classes with her, who was college age, who said, Hey, she's looking for some three days a week type job. I'm like, come on in and help me build lists. So I would spam, you know, 2000 people a week with the help of a list of just building lists. And what we would do is go to job boards like indeed.com and say, mm-hmm. who's posting AWS job postings or Redshift job postings? And we'd spam those people. As I said, my goals every week were to have eight meetings a week. And as I started getting on a regular basis, eight to 10 meetings a week, then you had to have follow-up on those meetings. And then I started to kind of say, well, I, I need help. And so I think in March of 2014, I hired my first two BDRs, ISRs, and they did a lot of the kind of lead generation. And that was what, nine months in, a year in? No, I started in November. Yeah, so November to March. So yeah, okay, five months. Yeah, and then from there, I think it was between May and, and July, we brought in three field people. One. Seven, eight months later. Two guys who had worked for me previously and one guy out in the East because I ended up getting on a plane a lot going out to New York and Boston. Yeah. So I needed someone out there. And that was it. And that was kind of the core field org for the better half of 2014. But we started to see that we were hitting it in this ad tech and online gaming space. And at least we could make money selling to them. And so we said, all right, well, let's start building a sales force around these three leaders. And I let those three leaders start to hire reps underneath them. And that was that. That makes sense. And then help orient me. What month was the first customer closed? It was June of 2014. Okay. So right around the time when you brought in your first AE. Okay. Next question. Those reps that you brought in, I've always found it a really tricky thing at the early stage. And it seems unique to find someone who you can rely on to carry a bag, live in Boston or the East Coast, go close a bunch of deals, do the same thing that you did, put your pride down, take a pay cut. And then also they grow into the future leaders of those coasts or wherever they are. In your mind, when you hired them, did you see them as the leaders or did you see them as reinforcements right now that hopefully could grow into something more? It's super hard and now seven years in, I hired them saying, look, you guys will be frontline managers. Just like I was saying, dude, in all transparency, they're gonna hire a new head of sales. They're gonna hire you know, eventually over me, right? So I never envisioned that I would actually have the responsibility I have today. And those guys, so there was three of them, two of them are still with Snowflake and they are in different jobs. They both at one point ran the West Coast and the East Coast. And the hardest part of being in this kind of hyperscale mode is you hire people maybe like one or two years ahead where you think that they are thinking they can grow into it. And some people do. But then when you're growing faster than that, when that two years squishes into like four months, then all of a sudden it's just the rate of change is kind of insane. And so we did that. And historically speaking, 
I really do believe in promotion from within. And in a lot of the ways that that has happened has been the best sales reps try to coach them into, into managers because from an early stage company's perspective, you spend a lot of time developing your sellers. Your sellers need to know how to sell the product. And if you have no enablement, I mean, we have no budget for an enablement organization. I remember teaching a BDR who had just come out of University of Colorado Boulder, who's a field rep for us now, on here's a computer. Here's how the computer plugs into the internet, right? I mean, like I was going to that level of detail with people. And you need your sales leaders to be super sales reps for a period of time. The most important people, I think, in the organization are the frontline sales leaders. SEs are really important as well. So... You bring on reinforcements and I'm asking these really specific questions because God damn it, it's insane where you are today. And I think people lose perspective to your point of these gritty days in the early days, how hard this time is. And I think why I'm particularly keen on talking to you, CRO of Snowflake, $100 billion market cap company, is that you were employee number 16 begging for your first deal that was 20K. And nobody has that perspective. And I think it's really important for the audience to hear that because again, to your point, everyone just thinks that you're the luckiest guy in the world and that it's really good to you know, pick Snowflake. It's just not that way, which is why you don't see many people as employees 16 being the CROs. And I'm going to go into that in the growth stage of this topic. But how long did it take roughly to get to a million of ARR? And I think there's a lagging indicator for Snowflake of probably six months because they have to turn it on and then they have to use the damn thing. And they have to get to the point where you're billing them, right? You recognize that revenue once they're using it, not when they sign up. So that was probably a scary moment as a sales rep, sales leader, convincing the sales team, right? They're like, wait a second. So Chris, you're telling me that I'm going to join this company. All right. You have a handful of customers. Congratulations. And there's really no market there. And we're going to take a pay cut to do this. And it's going to take us a lot of scorch the earth mentality to go find our own meetings, close our own deals, really not have any reinforcement. I have a BDR that doesn't even know what the internet is. And now you're telling me that I can close a deal. And in six to nine months, I still might not have a dollar of commission to show for it. Is that fair? Like that's basically the sales pitch, right? As a public company now, we report on consumption-based revenue. We did not report on consumption-based revenue in early days. For what it's worth, consumption-based revenue is almost a, a lagging indicator. The leading indicator really is what's the bookings. And we report that as a, to some extent, in remaining performance obligation today. And that this is something that's in our 10 Qs when we file. So our first year of GA started in June of 2015. So we went GA of June of 2015 in the middle of June, and we did three and a half million dollars in, in ACV bookings, so annual contract value. And that was what we rewarded the sales team on. In the first year? In the first year. Then we started doing an ACV growth target and then an ACV renewal target. So, hey, mm -hmm. we, we actually didn't do multi-year deals ever because yep. we couldn't get anyone to commit to multi-year contract yep. with us. Which is why you're measuring it in ACV. And that's how you're assumingly compensating the team. That's right. So it was, you had a renewal target and you had a growth target and it was all based on annual contract value. And that was really it. Then we started getting better at understanding the consumption. I mean, selling consumption is hard. It's like, Jubin, do you know how many minutes, if you've never used a cell phone before, do you know how many minutes every month you're going to talk on the cell phone? You have no idea. And so even if I tell you, hey, my best guess is you're going to call your mom and your, your sister and your girlfriend. Great. You're going to use it 100 minutes a month. Great. Let's buy 1,200 minutes. You might consume all that 1,200 minutes in six months. That's why you talk about how our, our net retention rate is through the roof is that's exactly what happened is people started using the heck out of the product because it worked really well. That's what the investors saw too is once we sold these deals, all of a sudden consumption started spiking. Okay, this product works. And that's the thing that's super awesome is when you're a salesperson, you don't always sell. And I've sold products that don't work so well. This is pretty cool to sell a product that works so well. And that's when you start to say, this is how we started to kind of reward the sales team on, go open a net new deal. So yep. then you start saying, open up what we call a capacity one deal is a net new annual contract. And I would just spiff people on that, reward people on that, focus on capacity one, net new contracts. And I would tell the rep, you have, at a minimum have to get annually 
at a minimum four net new contracts, but ideally eight net new contracts a year. And if you do that, you'll make a ton of money here. And that was true. I mean, that's how we managed the team. And eventually, because the product worked so well, customers would just start pouring information into Snowflake. And then, you know, we would just see huge uplifts in growth. Yeah, that makes sense. And touching on the consumption-based thing, Snowflake lives on top of the public cloud, right? And so it is a data lake built on top of the public cloud. And what that means is that the only way, to my earlier comment, that Snowflake becomes valuable to a customer is when AWS, GCP, Azure, the public cloud resources become valuable. So the reason Capital One was such a big, prolific, and early customer for you was because of how strategic AWS was to their business. And taking that a step further, AWS measures their business in consumption. So AWS is like a utility. You pay for what you use. And so it made a lot of sense, I have to imagine, that something that sits on top of AWS and these public cloud providers also follows the same billing model because it's so unpredictable with the resources underneath what Snowflake sits on that you have to match that billing model. Is that fair? There are companies that were sister companies to us, you know, from a venture capital standpoint, that they didn't follow those models and they ended up having to redo their business models because if your largest customers cost more than your underlying infrastructure, then you're you're booked creek. And so you you need to make sure the economics work and scale as your customers scale. Okay. So you did three and a half million ACV that year. You mentioned there was a renewal and a growth target. What was the growth target for the following year? And what did you end up doing? I think we did a growth target of either 10 or 12, and we did ended up doing 15. Okay. Mike Spicer had this thing the typical venture capital thing was, I think, triple, triple, double, double. And he's like, triple, 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 double, double. And you know, that's basically what we did. Okay. Transitioning into growth stage. And by the way, I'm going through the like incredible rise. And then I want to talk about some of the gritty stuff along the way. Was there a moment? What was the moment, I should say, where you knew? Holy crap. And obviously, you didn't know what it's going to be today. But whoa, this is a much bigger opportunity than I thought. If I go back, you know, in the history of Snowflake and say pivotal moments for Snowflake in terms of where you think, okay, we have it, we sold to AdTech, right? And AdTech, this company called Exalate gets bought by Nielsen and Exalate had migrated their Netiza to Snowflake. And so Nielsen makes Exalate Nielsen Marketing Cloud. And we were okay, great. That's Nielsen Marketing Cloud. All of a sudden, they're using Snowflake as the back end. And at the same time, we're doing a proof of concept with, we somehow get into the largest retailer in Portland, Oregon area, and they have a massive Teradata environment that they spend $12 million a year on. And the SVP of data calls the CTO of Nielsen and says, we're trying this company on Snowflake. Are they real? He's like, oh yeah, they're real. And we then did the proof of concept against this $12 million Teradata device. And we jokingly say $500 a Snowflake beat out a $12 million Teradata, which is was the Ferrari in the garage type thing. And so that led to then Capital One who had told us, no, Amazon didn't want us to win Capital One because they wanted their native product to win, but they had this on-premise Teradata as well. And Capital One was like, there's no way we're going to get out of the data center without something else. And that's when they tried it out. So it was like kind of three customers, Nielsen, customer I can't say the name of, and Capital One that you're just like, we got it. And then that was interesting. And then all of a sudden, those were the early adopters of the cloud, those companies in the enterprise. I remember going to Goldman Sachs and them saying, we've been trying to build this. And Benoit is this super humble guy. And I went, go on a sales call at Goldman Sachs where they have all these guys, managing directors, making millions of dollars a year in IT. They're like, we've been trying to build this at Goldman and we can't. And they say, when are you going to support private cloud? And, he, and his words are famous you know, within Goldman. And he says, you will go to the public cloud ever before we go to the private cloud. And he was right. I mean, three years later, they became a material customer. And I think those things, when you start to see those, that transition from 
customers who are saying you must be in the private cloud to all of a sudden them transitioning to the public cloud. And it's not just these ad tech companies. It's the Fortune 10. You're saying, man, we got it. And I still pinch myself because the conversations that I'm having today are insane with the companies that we're having them with. So I still can't believe I'm, I'm in this situation. I want to explore what you just said about what Benoit told the Goldman team. And for those listening, like early stage startups glamorize Wall Street and Goldman Sachs because you get a beachhead like that and a lot of the dominoes start falling for you. And that's a very credible customer who's really, really intelligent, validating your product for not only you, but for the market. Very few people have the conviction to say no to a Goldman. You know, you're sitting there and a lot of entrepreneurs would say, okay, maybe we should add that to our roadmap because maybe there's something that they know that we don't. I really respect a company and a team and a founding team that can say, no, no, like we know what we're building here. And if you want something else, that's okay. You're just not going to get it from us. Meanwhile, Chris sitting next to Benoit is the sales rep is like, dude, come on. You're come, like, really? You don't want to, you don't want to build something. Was that conviction always there? Was it really, really clear from the start? Benoit's conviction on what he wanted to build was super important. He had this vision and dollars will come by and those dollars will potentially influence you. We could have had GE distract us by saying, come and build Snowflake so it can support the private cloud. Well, the problem is, and Benoit saw that and said, well, if I support the private cloud, that means I'm going to have multiple versions of Snowflake. And one of the things he hated about Oracle was he'd go to a customer and say, the customer yelling at him and saying, well, your Oracle product sucks. And he's like, well, let me tell you something. You're four versions behind, which we updated, you know, two years ago. Right. Because they deployed a piece of software. So fundamentally, his issue was, I want to create a service and I want to control, I want to be the control plane of, I'm making the decision that we're upgrading the software. You, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, are not doing that. That was hard. That's created a lot of problems for me in the sales cycle because we house data. So there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of issues with that. But once you get through them and you delight your customers with an amazing product, it solves a lot of problems. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production, and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.